Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. The death of George Floyd in Minneapolis two weeks ago has set off a wave of protest and debate across not just the United States, but the world. Is this a turning point for America? And how will Donald Trump's handling of the Black Lives Matter protests affect his re-election chances this November? After Huawei, COVID and Hong Kong, is Britain giving China the cold shoulder? And with a statue of Edward Colston lying at the bottom of Bristol Harbour and question marks over the names of British college halls, libraries and streets, how do we decide which historical monument should stand and which should fall? All this and more in today's bunker. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that our next live stream on Zoom for Patreon backers is coming this Thursday evening at 8pm. You can still sign up and join me and the rest of the joint Bunker Romaniacs team for last night of the lockdown evening of top quality conversation and whatever's left in the drinks cupboard. As well as the live streams, you'll get our shows early with no adverts, plus mugs and t-shirts and lots of other benefits. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Now let's meet today's panel. Uh, It's editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hi Ian, how's it going? Hey man, not bad, not bad. So with a few exceptions, ever since I've been going to protest, the problem has been that if there's no violence or property damage, then the media tends to ignore the whole thing. And if there is violence or property damage, that, rather than the cause, becomes the story. Does this time feel different? No, it's exactly the same thing. And it's exactly the same thing in America, and it's exactly the same thing here. My whole lifetime, just like you said, the only time you cover it is if there's violence. And I think that if if there'd been no trouble at all in the US, we wouldn't have got the degree of coverage that we got. And I certainly think that after you've seen, I mean, I'm, I'm using violence in the broad thing because it's mm-hmm. you know, basically just property damage. Um, and we're seeing exactly the same thing over the weekend, right? A statue gets thrown in and suddenly you get this big, vibrant, important conversation that should have been possible simply on the basis of a protest, but in fact requires some kind of action to trigger it. And have you been heartened by the number of conversations that have sprung out of this protest movement? There seems to be kind of discussions of diversity and a sort of reckoning about racism in all kinds of organisations, you know, media organisations, kind of brands that uh, tweet their support for Black Lives Matter are being interrogated on whether the actions match up to the words. Has, has that been a kind of inspiring element of it, quite apart from what's happening in the street? Yeah, so I think so. most of the stuff I've seen, I, I, I have felt, has been quite healthy and quite positive like there's a lot of you you could do a lot of mockery of suddenly you know every journalist coming out the woodwork and going if you need mentoring then i'm here to help at the same time but actually that's exactly the kind of stuff that really does help which is when you start looking to your own life and your own sector and your own industry and thinking well what can i do here to improve the situation um i think you see the same with targeting of corporations with targeting of individual police forces with targeting of local councils and government so at the moment it feels like a really positive healthy place to be the only stuff that that really concerns me about where it goes is is when some of the sort of identity politics terminology takes over so i i, I my heart sinks a bit when i see words like complicit when i see words like privilege um, what, even the word educate, educate yourself and that constant shouting. And, and, it, and it sinks for a couple of reasons. The first one is, I don't think that the most useful thing to happen right now is a bunch of left-wing white people to sit there going, oh, have I fully checked where I'm coming from and what are, you know, and what deep that I've got? You just think, just be an ally right now. Your time right now is not to keep on in this endless prevaricating sort of attempt to, to deconstruct yourself. It is to be an ally. It isn't about you. So, so, and that type of reasoning tends to make it that way. My other problem with it is that it seems the wrong kind of language to get people on board that you wouldn't normally access. So a much broader sense of community who I think are very strong on anti-racism. If you look at the, the sort of public polling of people's attitudes towards the statue, most people thought that statue shouldn't be there. We have a pretty strong argument to make on anti-racism, but if that conversation goes out to lots of voters, to conservative voters, to naturally sort of small C conservative voters as educate yourself and um, check your own privilege and your complicity, then you will lose them. And so I I hope that it it keeps on going in the formal way rather than taking on that kind of language as it has been sometimes at the moment. Also joining us is former diplomat and Foreign and Commonwealth Office mover and shaker Arthur Snell. Hi Arthur, how are you? Yeah, good thanks. Uh, Living the lockdown dream. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we all. Um, one feature of the coverage of the protests uh, has been the lack of social distancing, which is uh, to be expected. It's very hard to social distance uh, on a protest or when pushing a statue into a harbour. Um, 
If the R rate rises, do you think that there will be a kind of politically polarised narrative with some blaming the protests, others blaming the, the people who swarmed beaches and parks after the government kind of muddied the, the lockdown message? I'm, I'm sure that there will be some of that, you know, on Twitter. But I just wonder, in the real world, I think... If Twitter is the real world, Arthur. Oh, yes, sorry. Uh, in the world of people who don't spend their lives on Twitter, whether they're not real or otherwise, uh, I, I sense that I think if, if sadly, you know, the, the virus starts to, to, to rise up again, I think actually most people are going to blame the government because there's been a, you know, a, a real plummet in, in the government's level of trust and, and, and a real feeling, you know, not unrelated to the whole Dominic Cummings saga, but that actually it's, it's been a fairly sort of chaotic response. And if it doesn't rise uh, after all this activity, does that mean that the threat of outdoor transmission has receded and we, we can throw a bunker party in the park? Is, is this essentially a sort of mass experiment to see? Well, uh, if there is one of those, I probably won't be allowed to attend because my wife's a public health doctor, so she's quite strict <laughs> on these things. But, um, I mean, I think one thing is that we the, uh, the, the impression I have is that we, we, we're still trying to figure out, you know, the transmission of this. You know, people are still not quite sure if asymptomatic transmission is or isn't a major thing. People still don't quite seem to understand whether children can spread it without having it. So there, there are so many of these things that we're still figuring out. And I, again, you can understand why people have sort of slightly lost their patience and they say, well, sod it, I'll do my thing now. Our special guest this week was on our very first show all the way back in January when we were only worried about COVID-18 and 4G wireless network. <laughs> She's worked as Homeland Security Advisor to Barack Obama and as a U.S. Senate counsel. She's currently a crisis advisor to corporate clients here in the U.K., which is good because there's plenty of crisis to go around. It's Amy, it's, it's Amy Pope. Hello, Amy. How are you? Great to see you and, and see all of you again. Um, so when you were first on, the U.K. was still in the EU. It was yet to have its first official COVID case. What have you made of the U.K.'s response to the COVID crisis at, at this stage? I have to admit, at the beginning, I was so impressed by the distinction that the UK was really drawing um, with regard to the US that I was fairly favorably impressed. The prime minister was um, in lockstep with the scientists. He always had the scientists in front with him. He consistently spoke about the importance of putting the science first. But as this has all played out, it looks like a lot of that has been more theatrics than substance. From my experience dealing with the Ebola epidemic, which is far, far more contained than this one, one of the first things you do when you see an epidemic is you start to test and you trace and you figure out how it's spreading within a community. And very early on, this government has stopped, had stopped testing. They basically, what it looked like from the outside is that they threw up their hands and decided we can't get our arms around this, so we're just going to assume that Basically, everyone has COVID, but that means that we didn't really know how much it had permeated into communities. We didn't really know what kind of um, resources we needed to counter it. And it created a level of anxiety that it's not clear yet whether it's proportionate. So, so all in all, I don't give the government very high marks for managing this particular outbreak. We'll begin by focusing on the dramatic and unprecedented events that have been occurring over in America for the past two weeks. The killing of George Floyd on May 25th triggered protests and unrest on a scale larger even than the late 1960s. And at a time when most leaders would call for national unity, Donald Trump threatened the use of military force in order to achieve what he called total domination over the protesters he has branded thugs and terrorists. How will these events affect his chances of re-election? And will they prove to be a turning point in US society and race relations? So, Amy, the process has been going on for over two weeks now. Uh, they're still ongoing. This is far from the first time that, that police brutality against African-Americans has been caught on camera. Why do you think the scale and longevity of the protests is so much greater this time? Frankly, I think the fact that it is coming on top of COVID is really amplifying it. People have been cooped up for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. There's a lot of anxiety. There are mixed messages about what actions people should take. The governors and the president are at odds with one another all over the country. And the impact on the African-American community, in particular in the United States, has been disproportionately high. And I think the combination of that, that lack of regard 
coupled with everything else that has been playing out in the country um, with regard to COVID and the president's continuing incendiary language just created um, a real, you know, flare up. Just it was just put throwing fuel into the fire. And obviously, Flat Lives Matter began before Trump took office. Uh, Ferguson was 2014. And the issues they're talking about have been trouble in America for decades. Do you think that this is so much bigger because it's sort of become a vessel for anti-Trump sentiment in a way that something like the Women's March or the protests against the travel ban just weren't? Yes. So I started my career at the Justice Department in 2002 in the Civil Rights Division, and my job was to prosecute police officers for misconduct. And the cases took me all over the country. I tried cases in the South. I tried cases in the Pacific Northwest. I tried cases in the middle of the country. And I can tell you that the issue of police brutality is it's chronic there has been always a difficulty getting juries to care very much about it, even if you ultimately get a case to trial. I mean, getting a case to trial is already a huge, you have to overcome so many hurdles to getting there. And I mean, what he's trying to do is is what has worked uh, many times in the past, which is to discredit the protesters. But we've seen Mitt Romney joining a protest. Uh, we've seen kind of the New York Times opinion editor lose his job after commissioning this kind of grotesque column by Senator Tom Cotton about sending in the troops. Nancy Pelosi, uh, not to universal acclaim, you know, wore a Kente cloth to show her kind of solidarity. So it's really, it doesn't seem to be, um, it doesn't seem to be scaring away sort of major figures in the media and politics in the way that scenes of unrest often do. Why do you think that that kind of the usual attempt to sort of tar the protesters uh, just hasn't worked? Well, first of all, I wouldn't assume that it's not working. It could and is probably working within suburban communities all over the United States. Um, And that is what Trump is banking on. Um, You know, I heard this interesting analysis and I haven't fact checked the analysis behind it, but um, I was speaking to someone who was looking at the polling and said, for every black voter in Wisconsin who didn't vote in the last election, there are five white non-college educated voters who also didn't vote. And so Trump is banking on getting that group of people to the polls. And so again, I would be very wary of assuming that this is I I think this is his strategy. Mm. It is his strategy to make this about us versus them. So despite what's happening in Washington, and we shouldn't underestimate how this is playing out in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Ohio. And one thing that does feel quite new is seeing members of the media being attacked and arrested by the police. Do you think this is, I mean, maybe this, maybe this has happened before. It just hasn't been, you know, documented as heavily. Do you do you think there's a connection between this and Trump's anti-media rhetoric that a lot of the, the police have come to see the, the media as the enemy? Yeah, but I think also the media feels it's been under attack for the last three and a half years. I mean, they have been, right? The president has not only curtailed the White House briefings, but he outrightly attacks members of the mainstream media shutting them down for being purveyors of fake news. I mean, it's outrageous what's happening. So I think you see the media engaging in a way because the freedom of press is as much under attack as the freedom of association and the freedom of speech. Um, Ian, we touched on this a bit earlier, but I suppose in the the British context, do you think these protests are going to be some kind of turning point in in US society? Not not that everything will be fine, but that it will just be... um, it'll be very hard to return to to business as usual. I think it will be pretty easy for them to return to business as usual, to be honest. I I have lots of those concerns that Amy just said about how effectively Trump's approach might play out in parts of American society. And like, I I don't know America well, but I I have family there, so I go there quite a bit. And like the entrenchment of racial ideas there is very, very firm. It doesn't doesn't feel like it does in Britain where you think it's... a thing that can be addressed externally from lots of other forms of sort of political identity and lots of other political problems. It feels like the roots are deep into the way that people associate themselves politically, the way they think about this issue. So I have to say, I'm never 
I'm never hugely optimistic about the manner in which these things will, will move in the States, even though I do see that right now it feels like there's real momentum. Arthur, do you think there are sort of serious political risks for the Democrats in that, of course, they want to support the, the general drive of these protests? And of course, uh, you know, they want to sort of challenge racism and specifically racist policing, but that things like defund the police or even, you know, sort of further, uh, you know, abolish the police, that there are certain sort of voices on the left that Trump would love to connect to Pelosi and Biden. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's certainly going to be one of the lines he's going to put out. And, and you know, just picking up on what Amy was talking about is, there's, you know, there, is, there may be more of one kind of voter who, who answers to that sort of, um, that kind of message than, than the ones that, that actually... Uh, for example, black voters who didn't didn't turn out last time, who could you know could swing it for Biden in certain swing states. I mean, having said all of that, I mean, I, not not that I've got any more reason to be optimistic than anyone else. But you know, at the moment, Trump's polling is is not good at all, and and both at the national level, but also in in these key swing states that he needs to hang on to. So, you know, I, I don't have an ability to predict how it is going to work out, but it, I think it's. It's hard to say that he has so far benefited from this, and clearly it's early days. But um, you know, I think it, it, it might be possible uh, if the Democrats are able to demonstrate that it's not just about taking one side or the other, but actually having grown-up solutions. Because that's something that, whether it's the virus or this hmm. issue, that you know, Trump isn't interested in solutions. It's all about abuse for him, isn't it? Well, yeah. What struck me was, uh, you know, having written a, you know, a fair bit about sort of the Nixon years, is that that Trump actually manages to make Nixon look good. Yeah. Nixon did go out of the White House and sorts of processes, which is given given Nixon's, you know, snafus. Uh, that is quite that is quite something. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to end with asking about Joe Biden. Um, he made a powerful statement. Uh, about Black Lives Matter, um, he also kind of made a gaffe on the, on the Charlemagne the God podcast where he said, if you're problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Um, on balance, how do you think that he is kind of faring in, you know, sort of in, in kind of rec recognizing the importance of this moment, but also playing a kind of smart electoral game? So I'm certain that he recognizes the importance of the moment, um, but I think how to respond to this is so complicated by the fact that you just can't go into a community. You can't sit in a black church and engage with the leaders within that church. You can't do the kinds of things that demonstrate where you stand, right? Physically, not just metaphorically. And so I think he's hampered by that. One, one strategy that the campaign is using, I think very effectively is to just let Trump, you know, hang himself I mean, you just stay quiet and he goes on and on. And the kinds of things he says um, provide so much fodder for the campaign and for voters as to why this is not a grown-up who is controlling some very serious um, decisions and putting people's lives at risk. So whether that's enough, mm. you know, for the people who are in the middle of the country, do they look at this and say, first COVID, then the economy, now the social unrest. I'm biased, so it's hard for me to say. You know? <laughs> <laughs> A little so, it's hard for me to say, but it's hard for me to imagine how voters do not see this and think, unless they're already part of his base and they're just going to be diehard fans of his no matter what, I do not see how a sensible voter could walk away from this thinking, yeah, this guy is the right solution for our country. Well, we talked about... Um... On Romaniacs, we talked about how the most potent message about Brexit was make it stop. And, and we wanted to make it stop by literally stopping Brexit. But Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings pitched make it stop by just getting Brexit through. Whereas with Trump, the make it stop is literally make Trump stop, that his administration is this sort of rolling ball of chaos. And so there's really no way that he can kind of, he can't really adopt the make it stop message. Because he is the cause of it all. He is, right? I mean, he's not the cause of the ongoing um, conflict between the police and communities of color, but he is not going to try to resolve it. He is going to make it worse, right? And I don't think that's what most people want to see. I don't think most people want to feel anxiety or afraid or worry about the police or... And I don't think police departments want that. There was a great message. It was, I think, the chief of police in Houston who basically said... If you can't be constructive here, please stop talking, Mr. President, because this is putting our officers at risk. 
that's the bottom line. If the police officers officers are saying like, please stop talking, that's significant. Let's turn to another superpower. Since the outbreak of the COVID crisis, China's diplomatic relations with other nations, including the UK, have been under severe strain. Repression in Hong Kong and the lingering questions over for Huawei and China's COVID response have featured heavily in the news. And with a no-deal Brexit looming, relations with China should be especially important for Britain. But does the world's most powerful authoritarian government care what the outside world thinks of it? China is one of Arthur Snell's specialist subjects. Um, Arthur, the situation in Hong Kong has become a flashpoint between Britain and China. Um, Johnson's offer to Hong Kong residents of a route to UK citizenship feels like a kind of rare moment of, of statesmanship. Perhaps his is one of the year. Maybe he allows himself one a year. Do you think that this is? Um, do you think this is the is is the right thing to do? Um, I mean, I suppose on two levels, on a kind of human level, but also on a sort of diplomatic level. How, what do you think of that? Offer? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it is definitely a big deal, and and not least because it it does actually sort of breach the terms of the joint declaration with the Chinese in 97. Now, it's completely reasonable to point out that the Chinese themselves have said that, that they regard that declaration as, as void now. Um, but it, yeah, it's a big step. Um, I mean, having said that, any promise that involves the Home Office delivering for you is, is clearly is one that you, you'd want to sort of check the terms and conditions. Um, but, but no, I think, I think it's a big deal, and I think it reflects the, the very dramatic change that's occurred in, in the China's relations with the rest of the world just in the last 10 weeks, basically. And it also looks like Johnson's slowly reversing his decision to allow Huawei uh, to invest in the UK's 5G networks. Yeah. How, signif- how significant? Is that, a, is that a very significant thing in China? It seems to be in Britain and America. Yes. Yeah, no, it is significant in China. I mean, I think this is a major development. And, and obviously, you know, it's, it's fascinating that a government with a big parliamentary majority is, is wondering whether it's going to have to change on this, because ultimately it comes down to a lot of Tory MPs are opposing it. But why, why is it a big deal in China? Because basically the, the Chinese approach had been to put a lot of emphasis on the UK as a kind of bridgehead into Europe, and particularly on Huawei, because you know, the UK, rightly or wrongly, has been seen as a, as a country with a very sort of strong national security approach, you know, very strong cybersecurity expertise. So the, the basic idea underpinning it was that if the UK will stand up and say, we can make this work, we can get Huawei in, and it's not going to damage our overall security, that makes it very easy for the other countries in Europe to, to fall in line. So... By contrast, if, if the UK is going to change its mind on this, it, it is a major setback for the Chinese. And Cameron and Osborne worked very hard to get more Chinese firms to invest in Britain. Are we, uh, are we entering a chillier phase deliberately? <laughs> Or are we sort of drift, drifting into it because of, because of events? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you, you've, you've got to admit that a, a lot of this was no one saw it coming. And, and I go back to the thing of, you know, in early February, the, the world felt very different. Uh, I mean, having said that, I mean, Cameron Osborne, they did make a specific choice. You know, that basically in 2012, there was a crisis after Cameron had met the Dalai Lama. The Chinese reacted very strongly against that. And, and there was a fear um, in that government that, that Britain's sort of big, bold uh, attempt to sort of engage with the world was going to be stymied by a bad relationship with China. And it was Osborne who really pushed this. And, and he, um, you know, has been on the record. In fact, he was, Osborne was praised by the official Chinese media in 2015 for not stressing human rights in China, which is just an interesting thing to be praised for. You don't know that on your CV, do you? Well, who knows? But it depends what circles you move in, I guess. But uh, yeah, so that was clearly that was the big that was the big campaign of, of that of that government, and you had the so-called golden era. Um, and you know, after Cameron left office, at one point he was talking about how he was going to head up a huge investment fund to get Chinese money uh, in, in into various projects. That didn't actually lift off in the end. So. Yeah, that, that's been a big thing. And then in terms of what's happening now, yes, that you know, in fact, this week, uh, Huawei launched a big sort of advertising campaign here in the UK, sort of stressing all the great things they've done in this country. And, and there's been the report that the Chinese ambassador said that if Huawei wasn't sort of accepted into the 5G 
network, then the other big investments such as Hinkley Point, the nuclear power plant, uh, you know, Beijing might pull out of those. So, so yeah, we're in a very different place now. I mean, the US has been very hostile towards Huawei, angered by the UK's initial decision to go ahead with the deal. Well, is this sort of change of tack that would go down well in, in Washington? Although, I mean, obviously they've got a lot on their plate at the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure it'll get a lot of um, notice at the moment. But look, the issue with Huawei and the role of the Chinese is not specific to the Trump administration. The Trump administration has engaged in very um, sort of, as as you'd expect, sort of, um, knife fighting tactics, right? They don't they don't pull any punches, and they're really, um, uh, you know, both in the press and privately, extremely clear on what direction they want the UK to go. But even before the Trump administration, there was concern being expressed across the intelligence community about the role that Huawei was playing and its independence from the Chinese government. And I think there's some fairly legitimate concerns that no matter how independent a company may be at any moment in time, um, the Chinese government can very quickly put a lot of pressure on that company to reverse course. And there's very little that any other government Mm -hmm. is going to be able to do about it. So, you know, Trump is making a huge deal of this and will claim credit no matter what. But I wouldn't mistake that for, um, you know, this is just about the politics. There are some security concerns that predate Trump. But Trump does seem to have a sort of personal animus towards China, sort of going back decades. Do you think that, that, the own, that there's no way that the U.S. relationship with China can recover until there's somebody else in the White House? Well, I don't know, because before, right before COVID, you actually saw a moment in time where Trump was reluctant to put a lot of pressure on the Chinese government. And the speculation was that was because they were negotiating the trade agreements. And so the... I wouldn't. I, Trump is very transactional. He is his actions are not guided by some philosophy or um, idealistic goals. Here, he is really what's going to get done at this moment in time that advances my own political interests. So, at the moment, it's easy to attack China, especially around COVID. Um, to blame them for the disease and the impact on the economies of um, the United States and the rest of the world. But that's just a convenient foil. If at some point China becomes useful to him again, I think he backs off. So presumably this will have implications on our ability to strike a post-Brexit trade deal with China. Um, I mean, how important would such a trade deal be? And should that be a kind of factor in in such decisions? Uh, no, it's not important. And no, it, it shouldn't be a factor. Um, not least because Britain has a moral and historic obligation towards Hong Kong. Um, and also because one of the most important issues that is taking place internationally right now is the ability of, of countries to stand up to China, ideally through some multilateral institutions like the EU. But I mean, a, a trade deal with China does not provide a tremendous amount of increase to our GDP. It has negligible effects, as it does you know, with trading partners like America the only real entity that really makes a difference there is the EU because we are so, obviously, it's big, it's right next to us, but also we are already in, in trade terms conjoined with them. So that's where all of the action is. Um, most of the, I mean, the thing is that the EU and Britain and the US all have the same concerns as well about the kind of behavior that China undertakes in trade. When it comes to dumping, when it comes to uh, the American case is not so clear, but when it comes to state aid, and when it comes to interference in intellectual property, the Chinese behavior is very, very difficult to reconcile with the rules of the way that international trade is supposed to work. And that is shared by most Western parties, to be honest. So you, you, you kind of, yeah, it, it, it's, it, none of that is going to change by virtue of what is happening. The only thing that is really changing by, by Britain's behavior is the fact that we're now less effective at dealing with it. Um, Arthur, China has both been praised uh, for how it... Um it kind of quashed the coronavirus uh, and kind of kept its casualties down, or at least the official casualty figures. And of course, criticised for its secrecy about the virus in its early stages, um, and thus being sort of, you know, blamed for its spread. On balance, what do you think this has done, uh, the, the, the epidemic has done for China's reputation in the rest of the world? Well, uh, I, think it's, I think it has had a very negative effect. And it seems to me there's, there's two aspects to this. One is the that this kind of lack of transparency and the feeling that 
you know, we, we can't get to the bottom of how it began. And that's obviously in the interests of everybody and, and in the interests of medical science. And then the other thing is that the, the sort of the conspiracy theories, now there have been conspiracy theories all over the place, but some of the conspiracy theories have been coming from official Chinese sources, including this mad idea that the coronavirus originated with a, a US military kind of project that went off to China, to Wuhan. So, um, you know, I think China is sort of engaging in that kind of activity has has had a very, very sort of negative effect on their reputation. And of course, they, they also, they sent aid to various countries, although not in, in, you know, particularly large quantities. And I don't think, I don't think that's going to have a long-term effect. And so if you, there's polling that says already that, that people, ordinary people in Europe, for example, have, have, have a much more negative perception of China than they used to have. Um, there's also been outrage for quite some time, I mean, less so recently because of other distractions, over China's uh, treatment of the Uyghur population in the far west of the country. Um, is what's going, is, is that still ongoing? Is that still as, as, as bad as it was? And is there any kind of global pressure that could be put on China? Is there anything that can, that can, be, that can be done on that front? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is one of those things that's, sort of only slowly been getting the attention it deserves. I mean, there was a big leak towards the end of last year. There was a big leak of official papers, which the New York Times covered very well, kind of looking at it had a lot of information about the sort of how the Chinese leadership had sort of planned and delivered this. But what we're talking about is probably about a million people in the far west of China in an area sort of close to Pakistan, Afghanistan, where people are tend to be Muslim and tend not to be ethnically Chinese, certainly historically. And internment, so-called re-education, accounts from people who got out of these camps talk of torture, all kinds of awful things. And, um, and it seems to fit with this kind of worldview of Xi Jinping, which is that he's kind of terrified of China going the way of the Soviet Union, that effectively that the, the reform and the opening up that happened, you know, under... Gorbachev led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and Xi Jinping seems to fear that that could be what happens to China. So he he has, you know, a, a view that China is going to become more authoritarian and more controlling. Um, but to, to answer your point about, you know, what what is the global pressure that can be brought to bear? Again, before coronavirus, I mean, it basically it wasn't working. There, there were some there were some notable uh, kind of votes in the United Nations last year in the Human Rights Council, where you had what you might call the usual suspects, North America and Western Europe, um, and, you know, roughly sort of 20-something countries uh, making statements that sort of condemned what had happened in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. And then China was able to get 50 countries to, to sort of to basically congratulate them for their, their wonderful work in, in bringing peace and stability. Um, and of course, those are countries, a lot of them countries which benefit from Chinese investment across Africa, notably also the Gulf countries. And that's interesting because historically, often, uh, you know, the Arab Gulf countries would be quite supportive of Muslim minorities elsewhere, but that hasn't been the case in, in, in the case of the Chinese, Chinese Muslims. So yeah, historically, by which I mean last year, it, the Chinese were able to get the sort of the, the, the mass of world opinion on their side, albeit not the sort of democracies in, in Western Europe. Now, whether this changes because of coronavirus, I think we just don't know yet. I mean, but first of all, you cannot have um, leaders being congratulated, Western leaders being congratulated for failing to raise human rights issues, right? I mean, that's number one. The one issue where you've really seen the Trump administration depart from prior U.S. policy is they very rarely bring up human rights, as except for occasionally when it is convenient um, to them. So, you know, you have to have continued pressure because there's always going to be this tension between the economic and commercial benefits of the relationship here versus the way that, that the Chinese government interacts with many of its citizens. Absolutely. And I guess that, you know, one of the things that is difficult for China is that another outcome of coronavirus is effectively a kind of deglobalization. You know, people want to be less dependent on these very extended supply chains halfway around the world for PPE or face masks or whatever. So, 
as we go into the future, you know, China's leverage on parts of North America, parts of Western Europe is, is just ha- going to be reduced. You know, there, there's, there's no way that that can't happen. And, and I think that means that this rather kind of mercantilist approach on human rights that, that Trump had taken, and I think Johnson was also tempted to take, I think that isn't going to stand up any, anymore. Finally, the statue of Bristolian slave trader Edward Colston was brought down over the weekend and deposited in Bristol Harbour, reviving calls to remove or rename other civic landmarks that bear the names of slavers. In response, of course, there were complaints of erasing or rewriting history to appease current sensibilities. Ian, um, as Keir Starmer, among others, pointed out, the people of Bristol have wanted to get rid of the Colston statue for many years, um, but have been um, you know, thwarted. It's been sort of caught up in, in bureaucratic wrangles. Is it right to just remove a statue when official channels have failed? How did, how did you feel about that action? No, I don't think it is right, but it feels like something positive is coming from it anyway. Because uh, it's not the people of Bristol. The truth is, it isn't the people of Bristol wanted to get rid of it. It was a lot of people in Bristol did, and, and some people didn't. So it got caught up. Um, and so like you, when you're looking at politics, you, have to, like, you just have to do this or else we're all fucked. You, you, have, to, you have to be a Kantian about things. You have to say, like, if this was a moral rule right now, what's happening, what I'm supporting, what happens when it's directed against me? And the image of that is, you know, what, what, how would we feel if, you know, there were, like, leave protests happening, pulling down statues of perceived pro-Europeans, or, you know, Tommy Robinson's guys putting down a Nelson Mandela statue or something, which is that we'd be like, that's fucking atrocious. There's no way you get to do this. So on that basis, you then have to be critical when it's happening in a way that you're more sympathetic towards. However, he is a really interesting case study, right? Because you can't really come up with an argument for why that guy should be there. Most controversial statues, it is usually that they did something in addition to their historical achievement, which we've, which you know, we found out. The classic one is obviously Churchill. Which, you know, Churchill was not; a, it hasn't got statues in London because he was a racist. <laughs> Churchill has statues in London because he was leading Britain against the fight against in the fight against fascism. The same with you know someone like Cromwell. You know, he's not there because he he massacred in in Ireland. He's there because of his role in, in English history. Um, on that basis, then, you have to think, well, what is going wrong with the formal process that even such a plain and demonstrable and, and frankly, quite obscene example like this was not changing? And that then means that even though the action itself may not have been particularly something that, that fills me with joy, if I'm honest, something good can come from it. Now, we've just seen like very, very recently in the last few minutes that Sadiq Khan's talking about having a diversity commission looking into the statues in London. Now, that seems to me unarguable right now that the way to proceed is if you say this method doesn't work, then you have to, for the love of God, provide a method which does work and which people can have these conversations that does lead to change and doesn't just get stuck in the mud. So on that basis, we can proceed if we have a sensible response from the government right now in a decent way. I have to say, I think that's only going to happen in London. The statements that I've seen from Boris Johnson, much as he tries to front load them, by saying Black Lives Matter a lot, doesn't actually seem to provide any obvious way of changing it. I mean, his, rec- his recommendation in his statement yesterday was basically like, stand for election if you want to get rid of a statue. So well, there should be mechanisms short of having to stand for prime minister <laughs> that mean that we can get rid of these things. Um, and if we were sensible, that is now what we would do. However, on a national level, I suspect that we will not be sensible and this will just degenerate into a cultural when I was promoting my Orwell book, there was a, a question uh, from the audience one time about Colston Hall, about renaming Colston Hall and saying, did I think that this was a kind of Orwellian rewriting of history, um, which I, I did not. Um, because I said the whole point is that you can rename something, but you, the whole, you know, in 1984, they literally erase any evidence that this was once a thing. You know, it's erasing the past Whereas just changing the name of something doesn't mean like you get arrested if you mention the name Colston. Um, do you think that this sort of language of um, rewriting, of erasing history is a sort of, perhaps a sort of an artificial way to look at history as if it was like a fixed thing 
and now people <laughs> yeah are exactly but like, i mean also fucking with it History is happening. The action of taking down that statue was a piece of history, and I, and I suspect it will have that effect because I don't hear very many people <coughs> suggesting that it should be replaced, that it should be put back. Um, statues are not just a reflection of history. They're a reflection of the values and the sense of I- communal identity that we have around ourselves now. So on that basis, they're essentially a reflection of our politics. They're a symbolic reflection of our current politics, and they are therefore primed to the critique of our current politics. Now, that can either be this completely black and white, you made a joke once, which apparently now has become the dominant conversation on Twitter, which is quickly, quickly, Churchill, good or bad. It's just like that is not a useful way for us to proceed to have this conversation. And there is a distinction. So, for instance, I mean, John Locke had shares in, I believe, that the actual slave company that is connected in this particular case. But John Locke is not remembered for his financial decisions. He also turned against them later on. He's remembered for coming up with, you know, would be the founding argument in modern liberalism. So on that basis, you're going to think, of course, these people are not perfect, but the part of them that we remember now is the part that we think reflects our current values. And that judgment, that debate could possibly, I mean, I don't want to be like insanely naive about this, But with a few diversity commissions, with an actual attempt to have some kind of public debate over the the things around us, we might actually have something quite healthy to say to ourselves about British history, which is a complex view, which isn't just we're a bunch of white supremacist murderers, but isn't also just aren't we the heroes of the world and let's forget about that bit in the middle where we weren't quite so nice. And that's not impossible. And, And honestly, right now, it is perfectly, perfectly doable for the government to put in the kind of policies that would allow that debate to take place rather than just have all of us shouting at our keyboards and on the basis of black and white. Yeah, you can't really win, though. I mean, sorry, we see this play out in the U.S. all the time, right? There is not a winning position for any politician, um, no matter where they land. They're going to alienate the people who see this as part of the history of your country. That's the issue in the South, for example. Um, or alienate the people who feel like this has been an oppressive and um tragic history that shouldn't be celebrated or glorified. And there's not, I've not seen any, I mean, certainly not in the United States, not seen any example of where this has really been managed effectively and everybody walks away thinking, oh yeah, okay, now that went, that went okay. (laughs) Amy, in the States, uh, a lot of the issues here with kind of Confederate generals, statues of Confederate generals, many of which were erected decades after the Civil War. Um, with, With, racist intent and there is a tendency to argue that once a statue is in place it must stay forever because it, it was, it's been there for ages and you, you sort of can't mess with it but do you think that when we're deciding uh if some should come down that the reasons for erecting them should influence whether or not they remain in place if they were part of a project even at the time in a sense of rewriting the history of the civil war I think it depends what perspective you're approaching this. So if you are a politician who's trying to navigate this space, you're inevitably going to um, alienate the people who believe that this was an important part of their culture and their history. And not just their history in terms of the time of the war, but the right of the states to exercise their um, you know, self-governance. And it's just, I mean... I think that's why people are wary of wading into it and why they are perfectly happy for their constituents to be shouting into their computers and tapping away with all sorts of nasty tweets because the nasty tweet is actually much easier to manage than um, alienating a very significant part of the population. Because, again, no matter which way you go, you're going to make people some make some people very angry. And um, and at what for what purpose, what gain are they going to get? I hate to be so cynical, but <laughs> Arthur, um, Nick Ferrari kind of made an, an odd comment on LBC. I thought that ripping down a statue to slave traders would be like shutting down Auschwitz because both sort of were memorial to horrific events. And obviously, the Colston statue was erected in the 1890s, 170 years after Colston's death, um, and it was not erected to show how awful slavery was. Um, but do you think there are ways of, and one of the arguments about whether to take it down or not was actually not about taking it down. It was about the wording of the plaque. Do you think there is a way uh, of turning the, some of these statues into useful memorials and more nuanced statements about history, even if they weren't built for that reason? Is this reframing them? Yeah. Well, 
there should be. There should be, but I, I mean, something I, I learned a huge amount. And, you know, I live quite near Bristol, and I'll be very honest, I, I was completely sort of unaware, really. I was dimly aware that there are streets and halls named after various people, but I, I, I didn't have this kind of understanding of it. And I've learned a lot. So clearly, I'm somebody who's learned as a result of this incident. But I, I learned even more. I read a t- Twitter thread by a guy who's a local reporter in Bristol, and he explained in some detail this extraordinary debate that was taking place just in the last couple of years about changing the plaque and how there were kind of interest groups in Bristol, including this rather sort of peculiar sort of society, which is like a sort of gentleman's club called the Merchant Venturers, but they are, there's a line of succession that goes all the way back to the slave trade with the same organization, who, who were effectively unwilling to have a kind of warts and all description of what Colston had done. And so I think part of the thing, if, if you're looking at what happened in Bristol, is the fact that within the politics of that city, it wasn't possible even to have a statue which has some kind of explanation of exactly who this guy was and what his role in history was. That was the first point. And the second point is that, again, there's, you can have a list of all the places in Bristol that are named after slave traders, slave owners, and so on. And the list of all the places named after slaves is one thing. It's one little bridge somewhere in Bristol, this huge city that, you know, its wealth is built on the slave trade. So I think this thing about useful memorials, um, you know, if, if, uh, if there were a few more memorials to the slaves on whose uh, backs Britain sort of built its wealth in, in the colonial era, then perhaps it would be easier to have this debate and, and actually talk to people about pulling down statues, whether that's the right course of action. But right now, I think, you know, we don't have legs to stand on. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes and politics. Just as lockdown restrictions were lifted, the sunny weather took a dive, meaning most of us had to put that socially distanced barbecue on hold. So what's been keeping us occupied in the meantime? Uh, Arthur, what's your self-isolation escapism at the moment? Uh, well, I, I've got two young kids. And so obviously this whole thing of self-isolation has been endless attempts to keep them amused. And we started doing these little animations of um, made from little Lego men. And we started out with little kind of uh, scenes here and there. And then we got more and more ambitious. And then we decided we'd take on the ring cycle, which, as you know, is 17 hours of opera. Um, so uh, that's quite hard to do in Lego. So we've kind of condensed it down to two or three minutes. But um, if you're intrigued to see what a two-minute de- depiction of the Valkyrie <laughs> looks like, if you go to my uh, Twitter account, you'll see it pinned there. And it's, you know, you, you'll learn a lot and you'll save all the cost of the ticket to Covent Garden. <laughs> um, Amy, what about you? So my sisters and I um, have been competing with one another to make the best music video. Um, It started with one of my sisters um, and her kids doing sort of a take on the Beatles. They dress up, they, you know, sing along and pretend to play instruments. Um, My family and I this weekend just did one of the Ghostbusters, which I think is amazing. (laughs) God, I guess everyone's so creative. So we just we've upped the ante. So we'll see what, what the next sister comes back with. <laughs> Ian, have you been producing any art? No, man. This whole thing has made me feel like shit. Like I've got nothing. I haven't made anything. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to sound what? What have you? Shit, what have you been doing instead? You <laughs> passive couch potato. <laughs> Um, well, uh, so Run the Jewels released their new album a little bit earlier this week, um, earlier than intended, um, because of the stuff going on in the States, uh, RTJ4. And Run the Jewels is like, uh, and, you know, Killer Mike is now basically a house. I think even my mum knows who he is because his video went viral at the beginning of the protest. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating. My mum definitely doesn't know who the fuck he is. But nevertheless, you know, more people know of him now. Um, and they have this sort of, it, like, they, were, they made me feel like public enemy there was actually a continuation of that kind of attitude, which is not just about making political hip hop, but it's also about having a pretty even mix of serious political commentary and just the most utter, relentless nonsense that you would ever find anywhere. That album, just like every single other album they've made, is fucking brilliant. And this is the perfect moment for it to be released. It feels like one of those yeah. eclipse moments of just like, um, it, it could only have happened right now. And now is when it happened. Fantastic. 
Um, well, I'm writing a feature on concert movies because I can't go to any concerts. Um, and I'm kind of fascinated by what a concert movie can be. And so I just watched Watts Stacks, uh, which is the 1972 Stacks music festival in Watts, where, you know, Jesse Jackson makes his famous I Am Somebody speech. And that felt really resonant because the concerts intercut with kind of just residents of Watts talking about black life. And they talk about racism, police brutality, but they also talk about um, hair and relationships. And it's just a great sort of panorama. Um, but the the one that I kind of, which was a big part of my uh, teenage years, was the Depeche Mode movie 101, which is an amazing picture of a sort of portrait of fandom and of being in a band. And I just realized that I was like, my mouth was watering at the sight of kind of stadium corridors and loading bays. <laughs> it kind of just like boring backstage spaces. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. Just like, it was the concrete. The show itself, I just basically sort of fell over with joy because I was excited enough about all the kind of boring bits. And it just made me realize that when something is, something you get quite used to is taken away from you. You know, it's like when you can go back to a restaurant, everything about it will seem exciting. It's like, they brought bread. I can't believe there's bread. So I, I recommend watching, you know, any concert movie, even the worst concert movie ever made is exciting because it's got a concert in it. <laughs> And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you so much to our panel, Amy Pope, Ian Dunt, and Arthur Snell. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show, and we're going to do some now. Hello and thank you to Sophie Smith, Paul Gregory, Sally Osborne, Lindsay Milligan, John Penny and Jack Fleming. Hi, this is Arthur and thanking Neil Ferguson, Anna Spiteri, Lord Kern, I don't know if he's in the House of Lords, Alison Train, Jeremy Bishop and Stephanie Appley. And thanks for me to Tom Pegg, Lisa Grab, Simon Carter, Anna Dubai, Katya G and Tim Langdon. Take care, and we'll see you next week. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Arthur Snell. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and the assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>